Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. There's a building in, on the Harvard campus called Cruft Hall, where they invented uh, the basis for radio and radar. In the 19, 1900, 1910, 1920, Cruft Hall was the physics building. And in the 1930s and 40s, people kept, the physicists just kept leaving all their stuff stacked up in the windows. And rooms became filled with junk that was left over from pre-technology days. And eventually, the physicists moved to the building next door, and Cruft Hall just filled to the brim with old radar tubes and everything else. And the term Cruft has now used by programmers to describe leftover code, leftover junk that you aren't using anymore that's clogging up the system. So it took us a couple of days to get rid of some of the cruft about intent and where you wanted to go and how you wanted to build what you were doing. So now we can get right into very specific things that are going to help you move in the direction that you want to go. We also have uh, plenty of time to talk about your specific projects this morning. Uh, many of you brought new pitches, which is great. You don't have to use all five minutes. We're going to do it very quickly with a lot of crispness. And before you start, I just want to repeat what I said Monday morning, which seems like six weeks ago, which is starting a business is being an architect. And you get to decide what land you're going to put it on, and you get to decide how many windows you're going to have, and you get to decide what you're going to build it out of. You get to decide whether you want to be on boardwalk or Mediterranean. You get to decide whether you're going to invest five houses and then owe the bank, or if you're going to bootstrap the thing. It's completely up to you. So if the deck is stacked against the business you want to do, know that going in, because you don't have to do the business you're going to do. The project is up to you. I hope today, hearing that again in its condensed version, sounds different than it did just two days ago, because it should, because it took us a while to take that apart and then restack it back together. The rest of the, my agenda for today includes tactics. If you want to talk about business plans, spreadsheets, getting meetings, marketing tech tips or techniques, getting your idea out there, making a ruckus, we can do very detailed, quick conversations about any of those things. Once you realize you have something of value to bring to the table, the way you architect it, the way you talk about it, the way you make choices will have a dramatic impact on whether your good stuff gets to the world. So every day, two, three people send me a book. And that's a lot of books for me to keep up on. And many of them are really, really good, better than anything I could ever write. And no one's ever going to read those books. And it's not because the books aren't good. I mean, we can agree that the books are good. It's because the person who wrote the book didn't look at the map and the terrain 
and understand how to get from the book to the reader. And they wrapped the book in the wrong cover. And they talked about the book in the wrong way. And they pushed the book up the wrong hill. And they made the book the wrong length. And they did all these things because they fell in love with this thing instead of embracing the fact that they had something to make an impact with. And so, you know, when I push back on Kelly or when I push back on Christina and people, what I'm saying is this isn't about whether it's worthy. It's about how do you architect it so that people who don't know you the way you know you will get the point. Right? And there's a, a podcast that there's too many hours of it for you to listen to all of it. A guy named Mark Marin, America's Most Neurotic Comedian. Uh, it's called WTF and it's free. Uh, but Mark interviews other comedians for an hour, an hour and a half at a time. And stand-up comedy is the perfect storm of all of this. You're a stranger. The audience doesn't really know you. You have four minutes, 12 minutes, whatever, to make them laugh or fail. And then you have to do it again tomorrow. And when you hear what's going on inside of these stand-up comments, it's exactly what's going on inside of each one of you. But then you see some comics figure out how to get through to people. Right? There's a hundred comics who are as funny as Jerry Seinfeld, but only Jerry Seinfeld is a billionaire comic. And only Jerry Seinfeld has put all these words into our vocabulary, blah, 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 because he figured out how to market and bring to market the thing. Whereas the other guy is still playing at you know, some Hotel Six in the middle of nowhere. That is the, the fork in the road. So if I keep coming back to shipping it and interacting with the marketplace and figuring out it's because you get that part right, everything else takes care of itself. So we're going to talk a little bit about business plans, but the short version of a business plan is write down enough to make a sales call. You don't write down enough to raise money. You write down enough to make a sales call. And there's almost nothing you can't make a sales call for that requires your software to be working. Right? That's what PowerPoint is for. So you can assert that your software is working, and then after the sales call works, you can say, I was just kidding, keep your money. Fine, at least you made a sales call. And until you do that, until you figure out how to be in front of somebody actually asking them for money or the equivalent of money that you need to, you know, putting their name on your website as a partner, whatever it is, you don't have a business. You don't even have a business plan. You just have a dream. Big difference. So when I think about Don's business, uh, the way the Yellow Pages became a multi-billion dollar company is this. It was a partnership between AT&T and R.R. Donnelly. R.R. Donnelly prints lots of stuff. They know how to cut down trees and make Yellow Page books. And AT&T figured out how to sell ads in the Yellow Pages. How do you sell ads in the Yellow Pages? Well, here's how you do it. Pizza is the biggest category in the whole Yellow Pages almost everywhere. The salesman goes into the pizza place. Now, 99 times out of 100, you don't get to meet the owner. This is a big problem in your industry, in lots of industries. The persistent salesperson explains that what he wants to do is give this business a free ad in the Yellow Pages and install a free telephone in the pizza place, a second phone, a yellow phone. Sometimes it was red, sometimes it was black, but sometimes it was yellow. This was 50 years ago. And the pizza guy says, finally, sure, why not? And what they do is they run a little ad in the Yellow Pages, but the phone number in the ad is for the other phone. And after a few weeks, this phone is the one that keeps ringing. 
Then the guy comes back from the Yellow Pages and he says, I'm here to take out the phone. And the PC guy goes, no, 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 no. How much do I have to pay you to keep the phone? And so the ads keep getting bigger and bigger because this is what all the pizza guy cares about is this phone rings. So the question that I would ask if I was going to invest in Don's business is, how many painters have agreed to pay $771 to buy this page from you? Because if they have, we're in great shape. You don't even need to raise my money because they already paid you. And if they haven't, I'm like, I don't want to give you money to build software or print things until you show me painters who are giving you cash. Several of you have asked about hiring. And this may not work for all of you, and it certainly doesn't work for every job. But here's uh, the way that I've been the happiest with it, is uh, you can't work for me until you work for me. So I'll hire freelancers, I'll hire people to do project work, I will work with people, then I'll offer them a job. And that means the vast majority of the workforce is not available to you. Because the vast majority of the workforce will not come to work for you for two months as a temporary COO because they have a day job, right? But that's okay because in exchange you get to have the best job interview in the world, which is you're actually working with somebody. And that's how you find out if they can do it. Now, the other part of this, which almost everybody underinvests in, with the exception of IDEO and a few other people, is if your business is built around people, really and truly, then you are almost certainly underinvesting the time you're spending prospecting for people. So the, the big book that I sold on Kickstarter is finished and it's the printer now. It's 800 pages and it's unbelievable. And part of the reason it's unbelievable is that I partnered with Alex Miles Younger, who worked with me on the Domino Project as an expensive six-month intern. And I hired seven of these people, many of whom weren't totally productive in the setting that they were in. But it's all paid for itself because I get to work with Alex. right? And then when you think about the funnel, the funnel also works for the people that you work with. But if you're really running a people business, and I'll use IDEO as the example. All IDEO has, it's a design firm, is people. So part of their model is, how do we spend more time interviewing? How do we spend more time going through resumes? How do we spend more time having interns? How do we spend more time trying people out? Because if they spend more time on this than all of their competitors, they will have better people. And if they're all they have to sell is people, right? But then you run into a law firm and they're whining about their prospects. Well, yeah, but you only spent 15 minutes hiring this class of lawyers. Why are you surprised that your firm is like every other firm? You didn't invest in it. So again, we're back to the tactics that make your dream into a business. The price isn't the price. The price can change. So what you do is you charge, and then if you want to charge more, you charge more. And if you want to charge less, you charge less. You're going to have to make the people who came in before happy. So that's why you probably want to raise the price, not lower it. But figure it out. The other thing I would say about pricing is the giant roadblock in pricing is now a penny. That there's a chasm between zero and a penny. But once someone pays a penny, they might as well pay 10 bucks. And once someone pays 10 bucks, they might as well pay 50 bucks. The drop-off is not significant. And that's the distinction, is a blog is free, 
And anything that costs more than a penny isn't free. You're going to have to experiment with what gets someone over that hump. In certain spaces, like uh, the venture capital world, it's really easy to get a venture capitalist to go from a free newsletter to a paid newsletter. It's not his money. He expenses it. He doesn't care. It's really hard to get someone who's been listening to Grateful Dead concerts their whole life for free to turn around and buy a Grateful Dead concert for six bucks. Because if there's an infinite number of the same item, their mindset is a different part of their brain has to agree to pay. I want to, while you're finishing, I, just want, I have to talk about cheerleading for one minute. All right? So, so here's the thing. One guy invented it. Herky Herkimer. He invented, listen to this, he invented the pom-pom. He invented the moves. He, I don't know if he invented this part. And the way he profited is because he was the content creator, right? He started a chain of camps that still exists to this day and a magazine. He makes, his heirs make millions of dollars a year. Just like, so they'll teach at the camp all the moves. So at the competition, three months later, that's going to be the move of the year. You can't be a successful cheerleader without paying taxes to Herky Herkimer. And I just, what I love about this is this idea of establishing the protocol and laying the groundwork, it's, it's every industry you can do this in. You can say, we're going to establish what, there's a group, I can't remember what they're called, you probably know, that determines what color your appliances will be in four years. Because GE and all the other competitors can't afford to be wrong about what color refrigerators to make. So they have to be in sync. So the way they do it is there's a guy in the middle, a small group, they all pay a fortune, and he sends out a memo saying, avocado green, four years from now, here's the palette, and they all make the same color. I think there's a reason it's hard to scale. And I, Simon and I don't agree on a lot, a lot of things about this. I, I love that he did it, and I thought the way he came and stood in front of people and spoke about it from his heart was really powerful. And as you've seen, as many of you have seen, a lot of people are carrying it around because they wish they could get to this. And the place where we diverge is I don't think there are many answers here. I think that largely there's one. And this is what the Icarus deception is about. I think that the purpose for just about everybody when they feel like they have achieved their purpose has nothing to do with to play the guitar, to pave the street, to run a kid's shelter. I mean, none of that's in our DNA, right? I think it's to dance on the edge of failure. I think that when people are dancing on the edge of failure and they're growing and they're, there's a void over there but they keep moving forward, that's when we feel alive as people. There are a few people who don't have that. It's been boiled out of them or raised out of them or whatever. But generally, it's that getting close to the precipice that I think is ingrained in who we are as people. What industrialists did for 100 years is they brainwashed us into not believing that because they don't want you to do that. They want you to need them because if you need them, you'll work for cheap. And if you need them, you'll comply and they'll be able to make more money. And now the industrial age is ending and all these opportunities are showing up in front of us and so we're calling everybody's bluff. So when you talk in the persuasive way that you have, lots of people sign up for the LinkedIn group, but then 
they are safe to quit because it's easier to quit than it is to stare down the abyss. It's easier to quit than to do that dance. So it took us, you know, 48, 60 hours to figure out how to move to a new safety zone that's really uncomfortable. That, in fact, our purpose is in finding a thing that we did that we weren't, didn't think was going to work an hour ago, and now it's working well enough that we can wonder what the next thing is and keep that cycle going. And that magical, ironic punchline is the Internet is making that easier than ever for 1.5 billion people. So the explosion we're about to see, I think, is not the explosion of industrial job creation. It's the explosion of people who figure out whether there's money involved or not money involved, how to do that scary thing, whatever that scary thing is. A few times we've heard about partners. And having had partners and having not had partners, I want to just riff on that for a couple of minutes. Uh, there are lots of people you can go out for drinks with. There are lots of people you can go bowling with. That doesn't mean you have to get married to those people. And partnership is the same thing. I did a riff in the Bootstrapper's Bible called Ringo Was the Luckiest Beetle. Because there's a sense that if there are four beetles, everyone ought to own 25% because there's four of them. There's a sense that if you meet somebody in the bar and the two of you are sketching out the business, well, you shake hands and you each own half. Fair is fair. And that's never a good idea. That a partner is a very special person. The, I had one astounding partner in my career, the very first project I ever really did. And Steve and I complemented each other. We didn't reinforce each other. We complemented each other and we trusted each other. And we were both in at the same level of commitment. And for the two years that we worked together, we like, really made a ruckus. And it was ideal, because he was the guy who was going to go to Harvard Business School and did spreadsheets and went to difficult meetings. And I was the guy who was going to go to Stanford Business School, and I invented businesses and made her, you know, flashy stuff happen. And I wasn't jealous of him, and he wasn't jealous of me, and it worked. But that is rare. And what is far more likely is someone's perception of what needs to be done isn't the same as yours. And someone's understanding of cash isn't the same as yours. And if you have a 50-50 partnership, it's only going to take weeks or months before somebody is annoyed at the other person and before decisions don't go the way they need to. So there are two problems that need to be solved here. Problem number one is you need access to technical expertise. You need access to somebody who can program when you need programming, design when you need design, uh, do uh, explain the legalities of 529s when you need them explained, for sure. And the other thing you need is you need someone to have your back. It's a totally different thing. And so you need to think hard when you get started, when the equity seems cheap, but in the long run is extremely valuable, what you're going to do before you take half of it and move it over here, or 25% of it and move it over there. And so the, the suggestions I have are as follows. One, um, everyone, including you, earns the equity over time. So you say to somebody, great, I'm starting this business. I need you to work with me as my head of sales. The first 50 sales we make are the most important. I'm going to give you 0.1% of the company for every one of those 50 sales that gets made. So if you lose interest after five people, 
we learned something and you end up with a tiny sliver of the company. But if you can really bring me all these sales you say you can bring me, and 50 sales later this company is really valuable, well, you've earned it because over time you were earning your way in. Number two is figuring out who has your back. And there's a difference between someone who has your back once a week on the phone and someone who has your back in the office every day, all day long. And it's a very tricky, psychodynamic, political problem that's not easy to solve. So for James Bond, it was Moneypenny. And Moneypenny was on a government salary of $19,000 a year. She wasn't a partner in the Secret Service, but James knew that Moneypenny was never going to let him down. You can have an office admin who is this person, right? That's fine. I mean, there were people I worked with at Yoyodyne who were very junior, but who I had history with. And I could just sit down with them and tell them what I was afraid of and tell them what wasn't working. And I knew it wasn't going to leave the room. And it was better that I could do it with that person with, with the tightrope I was on rather than someone who was my partner partner because I wouldn't have felt comfortable necessarily sharing just how out on a limb I was. Right? So, so what I'm imagining here is that you're dividing these tasks up. You're saying, I really need a brilliant graphic designer. But guess what? That graphic designer probably doesn't want to own half your company. If she did, she would already would have owned or co-founded something. Maybe what she needs is plenty of positive feedback, plenty of credit, and a regular paycheck. Because those are three things graphic designers rarely get. And so you don't necessarily give that person equity. You give the equity to someone who has cash and understands what equity is worth. And then give the cash to the graphic designer who values the cash more than they value the equity. Okay, so you just have to be very deliberate about this because I know what it's like to be out in the wilderness when no one believes in you and finally someone shows up and believes in you and you're so grateful, you just give them part of your company and then you regret it because it's going to take your company seven years. That's how long it's going to take before you say, Phew. That's how long it took Andrew Harper, seven years. And the question is, seven years from now, is that person you gave 25% of the company going to be standing next to you helping you as much as they helped you then? Because that's what they're getting rewarded for, what's going to happen in seven years. If you uh, take a look at the cap table, does everyone know what a cap table is? Is it worth me taking two minutes to explain? Okay, so here's the way it works. Uh, every company has 100% to be owned. So my company, I own 100% of it. When I owned Yoyodyne, the first day, I owned 100% of it because it was the first day. Then uh, someone comes in and says, I'll give you $5 million for 20% of the company. What that means is they have valued the company at how much? $25 million, right? Because they get a fifth of it for $5 million. You multiply by five, $25 million gets you 20%. So now the cap table is 20% to the guy who put in $5 million, 80% to Seth. So I now own 80% of a company worth $25 million, which is pretty cool. As the cash gets spent, the company might be worth more because you've spent the cash to increase value. It might be worth less, right? Because you're squandering the cash. Along the way, you start hiring employees. Those employees might want equity. You might give them stock up front, or they might get stock options, which they grow over time. Well, in order to get equity, there needs to be more than 100%, because I own 80 and the investor owns 20. So what do we do? We print more shares on a printing press. Now I 
don't own 80, I own 70. The investor doesn't own 25, they own 22. And those 13% that we were diluted down is now in this new pile that I can hand out to other people. So the cap table is the list of who owns what percentage as time is going on. And it keeps changing over time. Well, what someone, when you read about these companies that get raised, that raise 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, how do they keep the cap table working? Well, they go to the founders, they go to the early people, and they give them stock options that they have to earn over the years. So in fact, even though they owned 100% of the company the first day, they're quickly down to like 20%, but they can earn back greater percentage over time by showing up, meeting goals, etc. So that's what I'm talking about. That if you're playing at a higher stakes than just, you know, I have this little business and I'm going to cut in my landlord for part, what you'll find is you'll give yourself options so that as the employees and other people are gaining shares, you're also gaining shares so that you're not completely diluting yourself as you go through that. Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit earwolf.com.